Father in heaven, some people didn't wake up today. Some people woke up, but they didn't know who they were and where they were and why they were where they were. But Lord, you saw fit to put oxygen in our lungs and take out the carbon dioxide. Lord, for some reason, you saw fit to give motion to our legs and cognition to our brains. For those of us who don't have half of a cognition, your word says, when our minds and our bodies fail, you will be our strength. Lord, we're young, we're strong, we're somewhat intelligent. But Father, we ask as we open your word now, we'll give all of those to you. Do for us the things we've been trying to do, that we've made resolutions to do, but we've already failed. In your name we do pray, amen. Black Monday. It's a day that refers to the Monday after the last day of the regular season of the National Football League. It's called Black Monday because that's the day people get fired. That's the day people lose their jobs. And this year, not only coaches lost their jobs, but general managers lost their jobs. Usually you lose your job for not meeting expectations. Uh, what gives a coach success is usually having a good quarterback. However, the old way of getting quarterbacks no longer applies to today. It used to be that you could draft Aaron Rodgers, and he would sit on the bench and learn for a few years while Brett Favre wonders if he's going to retire or not. They used to give you time to learn the job. But now we live in the day and age of Robert Griffin III of the Washington Redskins and Andrew Luck of the Indianapolis Colts and Russell Wilson of the Seattle Seahawks, and here in California, Colin Kaepernick. Young rookie quarterbacks are given the keys to the team, and they're baptized by fire. There is tremendous pressure on coaches to win, to win big, and to win now. Teams no longer have a five-year plan. They can no longer afford to rebuild. Not only are the coaches invested in the rookies, but they are adapting their entire offense to suit the young quarterback's strengths. RG3 rushed for over 800 yards, and he played in a college-style Madden offense. He played in it because that's what he ran at Baylor. And he did the same thing there in Washington. He is young. He is a novice. But hear me, he is successful because his coach invests in him and builds a game plan around his strengths. I don't know about you, but I need people in my life who invest in me and mentor me based upon things I can do, not things I can't do. And if the NFL can do it, why can't the church? We need some church leaders who will say, I am willing to do something not in my frame of reference. I'm willing to not make you fit the mold, and I will change my game plan to your strengths and risk my job security so you can be successful no matter your age. But we're going to learn, learn how God does it in this message entitled, What You're Working With. What You're Working With. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and I'll read the first six verses in your hearing. And I'm reading from the New International Version of the Bible. And if you don't have it, it's also on the screen. John chapter 6, we'll consider the first six verses. And the Bible says, some time after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him 
because they saw the miraculous signs which he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountain and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Back in the day, I used to listen to all types of music, and one of my favorite rappers was Tupac. In his posthumous hit, Changes, he says, the only time we chill is when we kill each other. It takes skill to be real, but he said it's time to heal each other. Even though it seems heaven sent, we ain't ready to see a black president. He says, we gotta make a change. It's time for us as people to start making changes, change the way we eat and change the way we live and change the way we treat each other. He said, you see, the old way wasn't working, so it's on us to do what we gotta do. We have to learn how to survive. While Tupac isn't alive to see the second term of a black president, his me the message of the song remains true. We have to be the change that we want to see in others. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is a man of change. The record says in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, but he changed. And the Word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. In John chapter 2, he goes from a hydrologist to an oneologist, and he changes water into wine. I said, Jesus is a man of change. In John chapter 3, he changes from a meteorologist to a gynecologist when he tells Nicodemus that you must be born again. In John chapter 4, he changes from a rabbi to a social worker and a community activist. When he meets a woman at the well who is the star of Scandal seasons 1, 2, 3, and 4, and she's in the production for season 6, Jesus is a man of change. Before our scripture of consideration, we see in John chapter 5, Jesus is seeing a man that he wants to change, but he first asks the man, does he have the desire to change? He says in verse 6 of John chapter 5, do you want to be made well? This man at the pool of Bethesda, he engages in plausibility thinking, but Jesus is thinking about possibility thinking. He changes from a philosopher asking questions to a physical therapist giving demands. And he says, man, pick up your bed and walk. He sees in the man in a moment more than the man saw in himself in 38 years of failure. You see, the man knew himself for being an invalid for 38 years but Jesus sees a man who is pregnant with possibilities. Jesus is a man of change, and he wants to change you. Verse 1 of our scripture says, Some time after this, Jesus crosses to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people follow him because they see the signs of him healing the sick. You see, Dr. Jesus has paparazzi following him, and TMZ and Deadspin are reporting his every move. When he leaves Jerusalem and goes across the sea, the Pharisees begin tweeting his location. The people who are following him, they update their Facebook statuses saying, oh, no, he didn't. Did you see that? I can't believe what he just said to those people. He just broke the first law of thermodynamics, and they put hashtag rolling with the Nazarene. Wherever Jesus goes, a crowd follows him. He leaves the crowd to huddle up with his entourage to plan his next move. 
when the Bible says in verse 5 that when Jesus looks up, he sees a great crowd, and he says to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He's asking this only to test him because he already has in mind what he wants to do. You see, this is deep because he's talking to Philip, and he is proposing a solution to a problem that Philip doesn't even know exists. Jesus is giving a snapshot of the solution before the disciple understands the problem. So if Jesus is talking to Philip, it's a personal conversation. That means they know each other. You don't talk to somebody you don't have a relationship with. He is a part of Jesus' entourage. He's not an associate. He's not an acquaintance. He is a follower of Jesus. Jesus is respecting his intelligence. But in asking him the question, he doesn't actually want an answer. He wants Philip. He wants Philip to trust the source and not the resource. So before I give myself to God, no matter my age, I must first give him myself. He doesn't just want what I can do for him. He wants me. Jesus wanted the man. Jesus cares more about how much money I make or what my tax base is. He wants me more than what I give him. And what I give him, he really doesn't need because he already knows how he's going to supply my needs. So the reason why I give God my money, the reason why I learned and fell out of school and gave God my education and finally gave God my career is because I had already given him my life. So my Twitter page belongs to God. My Facebook page belongs to God. Even my social cam belongs to God because I belong to God. They are expressions of my individuality and personality, but they belong to God. We had a song back in the 90s before you all could walk. It says, my body is the Lord's temple. Back then I didn't listen to that kind of music, but the girl I was dating said, you can't mess with me because I'm God's property. The reason why that brother don't respect you is because he doesn't know who you belong to. He calls you his girl, his honey, his boo, and his shorty. Men, you see, men, well, they're they trying to be men, but they're boys. They use possessive pronouns like mine and, and yours, but they don't know that you don't belong to you. They barely know who they belong to. So they act hard. Well, I mean, we act hard and act cool, but we don't know who our father is. Trying to be players when they're really broken. Jesus respects you when he says, let's work together. He doesn't belittle you or speak down to you or, or speak to you in a condescending way. Jesus isn't running game on Philip. Jesus answers him, it would take more than a half year's wages or 200 denarii to buy even enough bread to have a bite. Uh, Philip tries to understand the how, but Jesus is asking him where. Jesus says, where are we going to get it? Not how are you going to get it? But of course, you know, if that was me, I would act super safe and said, Jesus, give me the visa, give me the Discover card, give me the MasterCard. Okay, you don't trust me? Give me the prepaid Walmart card so I can go and get some bread for these people. Let me check and see if there's some Groupons on my iPhone. And you look up the, social, the living social app and see what deals we can get. This is a big crowd, Jesus. Philip gives an answer to a question that Jesus never asks. Philip asks how, but Jesus says where. 
Uh, if I had more time, I would tell you that it's human to ask God how when he asks you questions. He says where? God told me over a year and a half ago when I was living in New Orleans, where do you want to live in California? I said, God, how are you going to do it? You see, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith is not invisible. Hope is invisible. Faith is visible. If Philip had hope that Jesus would do what he said he would do, then he would exercise his faith and say, Jesus, let's go shopping. I told somebody over two weeks ago when I helped them to get a job interview in Texas, start looking for apartments when you hang up the phone. They said, preacher, I don't have the job yet. I said, where do you want to live? But they were asking how. Philip doesn't understand that God never had a problem feeding his people. He fed Adam and Eve from an organic garden without thorns, thistles, pesticides, tractors, or migrant workers. God has never had a problem feeding his people. He fed the children of Israel with water from a rock and bread falling from the sky. It got, they got so bad where they were snatching birds out of the air. God has never had a problem feeding his people. God doesn't ask how, but he says where. If God can multiply oil of a widow and bring ravens to a prophet and sanitize bitter and poison stew for Elisha, what in store do you think I have for you, Philip? Philip, he's kind of like me, he's a thinker. So he gives an economic answer and an equation to a question that Jesus never asked. And he said, Jesus, it would take half a year to work for the people to get just a bite. Philip isn't the treasurer because Judas is the treasurer, but he knows that you have to have more assets than you do liabilities. You can't go to your bank and have more withdrawals than deposits. It'll come back insufficient funds. He's telling Jesus you can't sacrifice long-term profitability for short-term investing, Jesus. Philip is trying to get Jesus to think long-term, but the people have needs and they're hungry now. Philip knows economic equations and has information about debits and invoices, but he is blind to human need. If I had time to preach this morning, I, I would tell you that you can walk with Jesus and see him perform miracles and still not have faith. The miracles can give you hope, but faith is when you reach out and touch him for yourself. You can be in his entourage, hanging with him and rolling with him and still not know him. It's kind of like being friends on Facebook with LeBron James and following Kim Kardashian on Twitter. She has 14 million followers. And just because he liked one of my comments and just because she retweets one of my tweets, it doesn't mean that she knows me. But I stopped by to tell you that I'd rather be the person who clings to Jesus and be ignorant, yes, I said ignorant, than be smart like Philip and still have a slave mentality. I know you all are good Christians and you haven't seen Plan to See, Download, Bootleg, Redbox, Netflix, Amazon, Django. But I wonder if you've seen Roots. I know it's about eight hours, it's coming on in a few weeks for Black History Month, but, but I, when I was a kid I had to watch Roots. That was the one time when my parents would let me stay up and watch Roots. The slave mentality. Hear me, it affects the ones working in the fields and the ones who are living in the house. It's where the identity of the slave 
becomes wrapped up from the identity of the master. So everything the master wants you to think, you think. It's like when that girl from Utah, when she got kidnapped, she developed Stockholm Syndrome. It's like the woman who's being beaten by her partner and she ends up dropping the charges to protect him. When Jesus comes to you adults with possibility and all you're able to see is problems, I submit to you that's a slave mentality. Slave mentality only see things that can't be done. We can't make a difference in the life of a child and sex trafficking in this city because the problem is too great. Where can we get bread for them, Jesus? It can't be done because it's never been done. We can't help the meth addicts and the high school dropouts who have no marketable skills and they have a juvenile record. Jesus, it would take X, Y, and Z for that to happen. You know the cost and the size of the problem but you are so locked in because of your knowledge. It's a slave mentality that says kids can't be empowered in and invested in because they're young. It's a slave mentality to say it can't be done because it's never been done. But we need some people who can say that I know too much about him. There's nothing that you can do to make me doubt him. Just as sure as I have life, you can't change my mind like my grandma used to say, you can't tell me nothing because I know God for myself. It's the slave mentality of the adults that leads to a ghetto mentality in the kids. Ghetto mentality that says it won't be done. People with the slave mentality infect others and they get a ghetto mentality. Verse 8 9 says, another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter, brother, speaks up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. He should have shut up right there. But he says, how far are they among so many? Andrew replies with a conjunction, a comparative question, and he inserts an equation of inequality. Some of you are smarter than a fifth grader. You know what I'm talking about. An inequality is when you have two values that are different, and when they are compared, one is either greater or lesser. Andrew is saying, Jesus, don't you know math? 4,000 is greater than seven. Jesus, I know you're a carpenter, so let me help you out. What are they speaking down to them among so many? You don't understand numbers, Jesus. Let me give you a word problem. Jesus, can you understand they? And can you understand many? It's a ghetto mentality. And he wants Jesus to buy in. But here's what messed me up. Andrew has a ghetto mentality based upon logic and math. Maybe Andrew is asking Jesus to solve a linear equation where y equals mx plus b, and he's challenging Jesus to a brain riddle. But what Philip and Andrew doesn't seem to understand is that Jesus doesn't always fit our models of analysis and computation. Don't ever get it twisted. Jesus understands math because he helped me. Jesus knew the Pythagorean theorem before Pythagoras ever existed. He knows Babylonian math based upon the system of six. He knows Jewish math based upon the systems of seven. He knows Egyptian math based upon systems of 10. 
He knows linear equations and binomial equations and derivatives and limits and functions. But he goes beyond what we can understand and compute. Okay, chemist, give me an equation that can turn H2O into wine. Give me an algorithm for that. Okay, you're smarter than the chemist. Okay, biologist, explain to me how God can take 23 chromosomes from Mary and maybe 23 chromosomes from himself and stay both God and man. Okay, you're smarter than that. Hematologist in the room, tell me how can Jesus kill a woman who's been bleeding with the issue of blood for 12 years without a transfusion? You're smarter than that. Okay, speech pathologist, explain to me how Jesus can open a man's eyes and spit in his mouth and he starts speaking. Okay, oceanographer, tell me how Jesus having a mass of X pounds divided by volume on the Sea of Galilee equal to a density that can make him walk on water. Give me a computation for that. Jesus doesn't always fit our models of analysis and computation. There's no calculator in the world that can compute him. There's no algorithm that you can find out that can analyze him. There's no saber metric that can figure him out. When Jesus says, where are we going to buy bread? What he is essentially asking the disciples is, what you working with? What do you have? What are your resources? I'm not asking you to get a source. I'm asking you to take inventory of the resources. Don't get it twisted, brother. I'm the source. The best you got is resources. Before you can do anything great for God, you need to answer the question, what you're working with? For the more proper people in the room, what are you working with? What do you have? What can you do? What are you good at? What are your gifts? What, what are your talents? What are your natural abilities? What are the raw materials you have in your life? We need a church scouting combine. What, what, what's a scouting combine, preacher? Well, well, I'm glad you asked. A scouting combine is where college football players come in Indianapolis, and they audition their talents and their gifts. They're measured physically and mentally. They do a 40-yard dash and a bench press and a vertical jump, and they do cone drills and, and even mental drills, the wonderlick test. That's culturally biased, but that's another, that's another thing. Before teams invest millions of dollars into potential, they want to know the gifts that you already have. I believe it's the same way with Jesus. He gives us natural gifts when we're born. And he gives us spiritual gifts when we're reborn. So before we have a ministry fair, we need to have some temperament testing and some spiritual gifts inventories and some shape profiles. What are you working with? Whether you're two years old or 200 years old, everyone has a gift. 1 Corinthians 12 says that there are different kinds of gifts, but it's the same spirit. The spirit distributes them all. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it's the same God at work. How many of you know that if you're a drummer, you can use your cymbal? If you're a writer, then you can use your pencil. If I, if I were a singer, I'm not, amen, 
I would use my voice, but no matter what we do and no matter what we are, we must praise. If I were an eagle, I would use my wings, but since I'm a believer, I'll use everything. If you have a gift, God says, I will give you a space in which you can use it. And if your gift is misunderstood, I'm speaking cold now. If your gift is misunderstood, remember, Jesus asks you for your gift before you know what it is, before you know how to use it. If you have a gift that's not recognized or celebrated where you live, where you work and where you worship, give it to God because your gift will make room for you and bring you into the presence of greatness. So if your gift is only tolerated, then God will take you to a place where it's celebrated. Jesus says, what you're working with? I want to use what you have, not what you don't. You don't need a GED or a PhD to be great for God. I want you to use the things that you got. You can use what you have where you are to change the world. So those who have a slave mentality and say you can't do it, for those who have a ghetto mentality that say you won't do it, be respectful and just tell them Jesus doesn't always fit our models of reading, writing, and arithmetic. Jesus says what you're working with. And hear me, bring what you're working with to me. Because if we don't provide a place for young people to use their gifts, believe me, the devil will invest in them. Jesus says, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place, and they sit down about 5,000 men. Jesus takes the loaves. He gives thanks and, and he distributes <laughs> to those who were seated as much as they want. He did the same with the fish. Jesus to the intelligent ones. Jesus to those who have knowledge. He teaches a lesson in subtraction, in addition, in division, and in multiplication all at the same time. He tells them to back up sit down on the grass, that, that, that subtraction. He takes the five loaves and the two fish in his hands, that's addition. He breaks the bread in half, that's division, but when it keeps on breaking, it goes from addition to division to multiplication, but it keeps on going, not until you have a bite, not until you have just enough, but it keeps on dividing and multiplying until you have more than enough. They used to say in my church that little becomes much when you put it in the master's hands. What you have, give it to him. You see, you need to understand something. The universe, the, the universe is built on order and logic. What did I say? The universe is built on order and logic. You have 365 days, 0.25 in the year because it takes that long for the earth to revolve around the sun. It takes 24 hours to conclude a day because it takes that long for the earth to spin on its axis. We have speeds of light and speeds of sound. We have seasons and tides and gravities based on math and logic. In our story, Jesus sort of goes on logic. But the first law of thermodynamics says that energy can be neither created nor destroyed, only transferred. So Jesus takes that which is created, the five loaves and the two fish, 
and he transfers his word and creative power, and he divides and multiplies what's in his hands, he takes the natural and he uses it for supernatural purposes. God takes your natural gifts, but when they are in his hands, he uses them for supernatural purposes. You, you still don't believe me? God takes a virgin girl and she gives birth to a son, baby Jesus. That's natural. But when the Holy Ghost overshadowed her, however baby Jesus got conceived, that's supernatural. He takes a cross, that's natural. He is nailed to it, that's natural. But he used that natural cross to take in sin and to give you righteousness, that's supernatural. He was placed in a borrowed tomb and wrapped in earthly linen. They put him behind a stone, that's natural. But he used the natural tomb as a reality show to vote off the devil and to take the keys of death, hell, and the grave through self-resurrection, that's supernatural. God says, whatever you're working with, when you give it to me, I'll turn it into supernatural. That's why Paul says, whatever you do, however old you are, do it to the glory of God. Verse 12 says, when, the, when they all had enough to eat, he says to the disciples, gather up the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gather them and fill 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. They never asked for the overflow. But God intended their hunger to be fulfilled in the overflow. God says, whatever you're working with, bring it to me he divides it and multiplies it in a way that you never planned. And the overflow that's left over is for you. How does he do it, preacher? How does he take natural things like reading and writing and arithmetic and use it for his glory? How can Jesus use football and computer games for his glory? God doesn't go by what he sees. He goes by what he says. God sees reality. He sees the chair. He sees the pew. But he speaks unreality. God goes by what he says, not by what he sees. He sees fish, but he says multiply. He sees problems, but he says possibilities. He sees deficiencies but he speaks capabilities. I'm so glad that God doesn't go by what he sees. He goes by what he says. He sees me as a sinner. Not you, y'all super saved, but, but he sees me as a sinner. But he says, son, I'm making you a saint. He sees me as somebody who's broken my New Year's resolutions. He already knew I was going to forget him, but he did it to test me. But he said, son, you can do what I put into your heart. How he was going to do it, it wasn't up to them. He already had it in his heart. He wants you to see some things. But he says, when you get your gifts, bring them to me and start multiplying. When you put them in my hands, they will multiply and do what you never intended and what you never planned. 
There's a group of young people meeting in Atlanta this last week. A group of broke young people. We keep saying young people are broke, but they are the largest demographic for marketing. We got money. And this group of broke young people and college students were there at a passion conference. Some of y'all know Louis Giglio, that guy. Yeah, yeah, y'all seen him in the news. But he's a speaker for young adult ministry there in Atlanta. They raised $3 million, liquid cash, to end sex trafficking. A group of broke young people. They didn't pledge $3 million. They collected $3 million. What are they among so many? You see, we need a generation of believers that don't engage in plausibility thinking or probability thinking or in problem thinking, but in possibility thinking. People who know what they're working with and who they're working for. Young people like Joshua and Caleb who says, I know the giants, I know the obstacles, but if God is with us, we're able to take the land. The other people only saw what they couldn't do. They saw the size of the task. They saw the size of the obstacles, but Joshua and Caleb only saw opportunities. People like David, who sees the size of the giants, but he says, God, I'm working with five stones. People like Gideon, who marched not with 300 Spartans, but with 300 Israelites. He doesn't fight the Persians with King Leonidas, but he fights the Midianites with 300 torches and trumpets. He didn't go by what he saw, but by what God said. God says, you're not even going to fight, but I say, blow the trumpet and light the torch. People like the Shunammite woman who saw her son dead, but she speaks life to a prophet to believe the impossible. She didn't go by what she saw. She went by what she said. People like Daniel, who knew what he was working with and who he was working for. So when he was tested with a death degree, a death decree and a diet decree and a worship decree, he saw it all as God's opportunities. We need a generation of people who don't go by what they see. We need some adults who don't go by what they see, but they'll see the young kids with the five loaves and the two fish. God saw five fish and two loaves, but he said, I'm going to feed 5,000. In the Gospels, God sees a withered hand, but he says, be made whole. He sees a leper with his skin falling off his bones, but he says, be healed. He, he sees a deaf man and a mute man, but he says, Epitha, be opened. God doesn't go by what he sees. He goes by what he says. So when people look at you and they say, you're too young to serve. You're too young to do X, Y, and Z. You know all you got to do? Tell them to look at Facebook and Twitter. Made by dropouts from college and people who are under 25. We need the mind of inventors, people who don't go by what they see. They go by what they say. Jesus, when he saw a dead teenager on his way to be buried, he says, young man, I say to you, arise. Jesus sees you where you are and how you are and why you are what you are. But he says, 
I will take what you have. I will invest in you, and I will structure a game plan for you, a ministry just for you, a career path just for you. If you're like me, you fell out of college, you got to try a few more times. Jesus will take what you have and give you more than you ever dreamed. You got the answer. Somebody in here has the cure for cancer. You just don't even know it. Will you put yourself in my hands to be blessed and to be broken, to be multiplied and divided, to save people in your world? But are you asking God, what, what are they among so many? Jesus, I'm only six years old. Jesus, I dropped out of high school. I dropped out of college. What can I do? But Jesus said, are you going to give me what you have? So I'll give them what they don't have. One of my favorite characters since I was a kid was Batman. I don't know why I like Batman. Maybe it was because I'm an orphan, but, but Batman. Recently, last year, he came out with the last movie in the trilogy, Dark Knight Rises. And since the last episode, he hadn't been seen in a while. And people lost hope in Batman. Batman went into hiding after he saved Gotham for the umpteenth time. And he's in hiding, but a new enemy arises, Bane. A person who's so intimidating that he has, you can barely understand what he's saying, but as soon as you hear his voice, you get goosebumps. Maybe it was just me. Bane was trained in the darkness, shaped by the darkness, trained by the League of Shadows. And he's taken Gotham hostage. But Batman, he has something called his utility belt. That when I was your age and didn't have cable, I would watch him. And no matter what situation he was in, he always could reach in his utility belt, even if his hands were cuffed behind his back. He tried to fight Bane in his own strength. But Bane says, you try to manipulate darkness. But I was trained by it. And he beats Batman and he throws him into a pit. And Gotham is lost and trapped because of Bane. But what he didn't understand is that when he began to believe in himself, when he began understanding what he was working with and who he was working for, he started exercising again and his strength began coming back. And he climbed out of the pit. And when he rolled up in Gotham this time, he knew exactly what he was going to do, but he knew he needed help. So he goes to the police officers and says to the police officers, what are you working with? And the police officers say, we've been stuck under the city for months. And he says, can you mobilize? We're going to fight Bane. Take him head on. And he says, yeah, we, we can do that. He goes to Catwoman and says, Catwoman, what are you working with? What can you do? And she tries to deter Batman, but Batman says, if I don't save them, nobody will. And he goes to fight Bane. But at the same time, while he's fighting Bane, a bomb is set to blow. And everybody is wondering what's going to happen when the bomb explodes. They're trying, they can't evacuate the city, so Batman does what is unexpected. After he kills Bane, 
he jumps in his plane and he takes the bomb and flies away. Batman didn't give something in his utility belt, but when the bomb exploded, everybody knew that Batman gave his life. We don't know if he lived or not. He gave his life for people who didn't respect him, for people who didn't ask for his help, for people who knew him but they doubted him. I don't know about you, but the human record says when Adam asked God, what are you working with? God says, I got you, I'll give you a lamb. When Isaac asked God, what are you working with? God says, I'm going to give you an inheritance. When Jacob asked God, what are you working with? God says, I got you, I'm going to give you a ladder. When Moses asked God, God, what are you working with? God says, son, I will give you a rod. When David asked God, what are you working with? God says, I got you. I'll give you some stones. But when Satan asked God, what are you working with? What the people need is greater than something from your utility belt. What they need is greater than what you can give. So God says, I got you. I'm going to give you my son. But the devil says, what is he among so many? God says, you can take him like the bread. You can break him and place him in the tomb. But when you place him in the tomb, he's going to be like bread placed in the oven. So when the fire began heating, the timer went off on Easter Sunday. And when he came out, he didn't come out with math and equations. The devil says the law demands this, sin demands this, but Jesus says, I have the keys of death, hell, and the grave. Grace, you want an equation, devil? Grace is greater than sin. Where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. So there's some people here under the sound of my voice. You might find yourself like Batman stuck in a situation that you can't get out of, thinking that there's something in your utility belt that's going to help you. But God says, when you've reached the end of you, that's when I step in and be broken in your place. Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven, and he was broken for you. Batman is good, but he can't save me. Optimus Prime gives me goosebumps, but he can't save me. Spider-Man is smarter than me, but he can't save me. Only one person can do it. And hear me, he's already done it. So the question is, are you going to tell God, here I am and I'm in your hands? If that's what you need, you need to be put into the hands of the master. I invite you to stand to your feet. I'm going to pray a special prayer just for you. There's something in your life when God comes to you and says, what can you do to save the people close to you? And you say, God, what am I among so many? But, but God says, look at my son. They said he was foolish, but he was smarter than all of the world's philosophers. They said he was crazy, but I'm glad I serve a crazy God who will reach down into the filth Jesus will go past where Bain was and will save the people there. There's some people here. You're like those fish and loaves. 
you're in the hands of somebody else, but you want to be in the hands of Jesus. I invite you to come to the front. I'm going to pray a special prayer just for you. You want to be in the hands of Jesus where he can add to you and subtract some things and multiply some things in your life. But he says, what are you working with? Will you give the things that you have to me and let me meet the needs that you can't meet? There's someone here, they're like that bread and that fish. They want to be into the hands of Jesus. You've been trying to do it yourself, thinking that there's a utility belt somewhere, there's a contingency plan. But Jesus says, come to me. I will bless you and I will break you, but I will multiply your gifts in a way that you've never dreamed. Is there one? You want to give your gifts to him. You don't know how you're going to do it. God has put some dreams in your heart that you don't know how you're going to achieve them. But he says, bring it to me. Bring it to me. God has put a dream in your heart and you wonder how you're going to accomplish it. He says, now that you know the gift, bring it to me. And when you bring it to me, you'll meet some adults, some haters there with a ghetto mentality and a slave mentality. But Jesus says, don't worry about them. You're always going to have haters. Haters aren't hating on you. They're hating what they can't do because of your gift. He says, come to me. Some people here are leaders. You, you might be like me and have a slave mentality and a ghetto mentality, but you see some kids here with some loads and you wanna come and say, God, I give you my mind and my heart. I give you my resources so I can empower them. There's some adult leaders that need to repent and do like Mike Shanahan did and empower RG3 to win not based upon your expectations, but based on their gifts. If you're a youth leader and you want to say, I will change my frame of reference to do something out of the box so we can meet the needs of Fresno. Is there one? There's some adults here that want to say, God, I give you myself so I can empower the next generation. your heads with me. Father in heaven, we look at some dead fish and some stale bread and we wonder, what can you do? We look at the needs around us. We see the chaos in people's lives. We see the size of the giant. And God, we tremble, but we forget that when we had the minimum wage job of killing lions and tigers and bears, you were preparing us for the giant. God, there's some young people here. They don't know what they're working with because they've been trying to fit molds that was never intended for them. Trying to fight in armor that's not fit for them. But God, I thank you that you look beyond the haters, beyond the mentalities that we have. And you see young boys and girls with dead fish and stale loads. But when they give it to you, 
and multiplies and becomes supernatural. God, we give you our gifts. We give you our talents. We give you even the dysfunctions inside of us. But we ask for you to not go by what you see. Speak life into us. So we can be the creative geniuses that you designed for us to be. If that's what you need God to do in your life, just respond by saying amen. God bless you. God bless you.